A quick note before we get started. If you're joining us from the Weekly Review podcast with Sirach and Sean, we want to welcome you and thank you for giving us a listen. If you haven't yet heard their show, we highly recommend you check out the Weekly Review, available on most podcast platforms, to listen to Sean and Sirach's hilarious takes on some of the week's biggest news stories. Want even more content from Cold Case Frozen Tundra and additional details on the mysterious disappearance of Starkey Swenson? Like and follow the Cold Case Frozen Tundra podcast page on Facebook, follow at Frozen Tundra podcast on Instagram, and subscribe to our YouTube channel for behind-the-scenes footage, new insights on the podcast, details of the case, and more. As our search for the missing body of Starkey Swenson continues, we will be updating our content regularly, so be sure to subscribe to those platforms and check back often. You can also check us out online at our website, frozentunderpodcast.com. There you'll find more about the case, the podcast, and us, your hosts, and even an interactive story map which details the major sites, individuals, and events of the Starkey Swenson case. Now, let's get into our investigation. August 13, 1983, Starkey Swenson left his home on bicycle and set off into the Nina, Wisconsin night. His planned destination and route are unknown. What is known, he was never heard from again. Ten years later, with no trace of Swenson's body ever found, a man was arrested and charged with Swenson's murder. He maintains his innocence, but halts his 1994 trial by accepting a lesser charge and is sentenced to two years in prison. To this day, that man, John C. Andrews, refuses to admit any involvement or guilt in the crime. Starkey Swenson's body has never been found. I'm Dr. Jordan Karsten, and together with my team, I've been asked by investigators to help find the body and with it, answers. In this podcast, we will review the case in detail, applying today's knowledge and technology, and will chronicle the effort to locate and recover the lost body of Starkey Swenson. This is Cold Case, Frozen Tundra, Episode 2. There, now you're dead. John C. Andrews sits pensively at the table, three fingers of his left hand pressed gently against his chin as in stoic contemplation. Charcoal suit, black tie, and crisp white shirt, his thin graying hair swept smartly to the side, Andrews presents the stately man of 54 years. A British-born airline inspector, well-traveled and twice divorced, Andrews now finds himself in a rare new life experience. 
He is listening to the presentation of preliminary evidence against him, evidence of his involvement in the murder of Starkey Swenson. I'm Matt Hiskus, co-host of Cold Case Frozen Tundra, here along with Dr. Jordan Karsten for the second episode in our investigation of this case as we seek to locate Starkey Swenson's missing body. On September 16, 1993, 10 years and 34 days since Starkey Swenson peddled off into the unknown, John C. Andrews is arrested for his murder. The arrest comes as quite a surprise in a case that has revealed very few leads in over a decade of investigation. As recently as August, less than a month prior, the Winnebago County Sheriff's Office and the District Attorney are reported as stating there are almost no new leads in the case and that there have been basically zero calls in recent years, though the case does remain open. So in the span of less than a month, we go from essentially a stalled missing persons investigation to a case that's now been classified as a murder and we've got a suspect arrested. What happened to bring this sudden and dramatic change? What happened is a new witness stepped forward. Suzanne Eggert, an ex-girlfriend of John C. Andrews, provides police with her knowledge of what transpired the night of April 13, 1983. It gives police the evidence they need to arrest Andrews for the murder. So if you haven't listened yet to our first episode on this case, we suggest that you go do that now. If you did listen to episode one, you'll recall that up to this point, the point of Eggert's added information, the police know that Starkey Swenson went on a picnic with his wife Lois in the afternoon on the day that he went missing. His daughter told the police in her missing persons report that the picnic ends with an argument between the couple. They return home, and around 8.30 p.m., shortly after they get back, Starkey Swenson gets on his bike and heads away from the house. His daughter believes he went to see a friend on nearby Congress Street, but police learn that Swenson never went to visit that home. We also know that police interviewed John C. Andrews about the disappearance. We don't have information at this point to indicate why they question Andrews, or what makes them think that he's involved. But we do learn later in the investigation that they've obtained a warrant for Andrew's vehicle and they impound it at the crime lab. A janitor at a local junior high school informs the police that he found bike parts and long gouges in the pavement on the school grounds, but he didn't think that they were related until later hearing that Swenson was last seen riding a bike. And the parts seemed to be a match. Unfortunately, not knowing this information at the time that they were found, the janitor had thrown the parts in the school's dumpster. The state went so far in this case as to hold a John Doe proceeding, a special type of hearing meant to compel testimony from witnesses and assist the state in determining the strength of a potential case. And they did that with John Andrews as their person of interest. So clearly, the police have been suspicious of Andrews since early in the case, but have released very few details to indicate why. And despite their interest in him, They don't appear to have strong evidence connecting Andrews to Swenson's disappearance, as no arrest is made during the decade-long investigation. All that changes with Suzanne Egger. And now we need to figure out what she actually told him. Well, there's a whole lot to fill in there. But Eggert essentially provides two key points of information for the police. First, she provides some background information on Andrews' motive for the murder. Second, she states she was near the scene of the crime on the night it occurred, and although she did not witness it directly, tells police details that allow them to construct their understanding of the event. We find all this out in her testimony at the preliminary hearing for the case, which began on September 21, 1993, and continued on October 12th of that year. 
Suzanne Eggert, at the time of the murder in 1983, is involved in a relationship with John C. Andrews. It's unclear how long he and Suzanne have been dating, but he's been divorced from his ex-wife, Claire Andrews, for about a year. So Eggert is dating John Andrews during this time and reports to the police that she becomes aware over the course of their relationship that Andrews is furious with Starkey Swenson. Andrews tells her that Swenson is involved in a long-term affair with Claire. She says Andrews brought Claire up often and was, quote, in love if not obsessed with her, end quote. He was so angry about Starkey and Claire's affair that he once drove Eggert past Swenson's home and whispered, quote, that's where Starkey Swenson lives. I'd like to kill him, end quote. We don't know whether the police were already aware of Swenson's affair with Claire Andrews, but it's likely that they were. This might explain their interest in questioning John Andrews about this case from an early stage. It also sheds new light on the importance of the Shattuck Junior High School site where the bike was found, as that is located directly across the street from Claire's house. Right. So Suzanne Eggert gives the police a pretty insightful look into the potential motive for John Andrews to murder Starkey Swenson. That's big, but this isn't her only role in this case. Likely even more important is the information that she's able to provide from the day of the murder. What's really interesting is that she's able to fill in the timeline for much of that day. It's quickly apparent that Eggert is set to be one of, if not the only, star witness for the prosecution in this case. Suzanne starts her testimony in the afternoon on August 13, 1983, the day that Starkey Swenson disappears. She states that John Andrews had told her that he was going to stop by Claire's house and that she expects he'll be coming over to see her after his visit with Claire. So Suzanne knows John is stopping to see Claire. She can't be very happy about this, given that she's already told the court that John was still in love with his ex-wife. But at least he's coming to see her once he wraps up that visit. But the day drags on. Suzanne is still expecting John to turn up at her house any moment, but he still hasn't come to see her by mid-evening. Eggert states that she gets bored of waiting and begins to wonder why he hasn't shown up. She leaves her home on Grove Street and drives past the home of Claire Andrews, just a couple of blocks away. It's around 8.30 or 9 p.m. Suzanne sees John's car, lights on, backing out of the driveway. John appears to be leaving Claire's house right at that moment. Suzanne's expecting him to come to her place when he leaves, so she quickly turns around in order to be there when he arrives. Only, John doesn't come by. Right. So as you said, Suzanne Eggert sees John Andrews backing out of Claire's driveway around 8.30 or 9 o'clock p.m., and she heads back home. She waits for him, based on her stated timeline, about an hour to an hour and a half. It's now between 9.30 and 10.30 p.m., and John still hasn't shown up. So, Suzanne leaves her house again as she tells the court, quote, to get some cigarettes and to take a drive, end quote. She says she's tired of waiting for John to arrive. Now, Suzanne doesn't say this explicitly, but I think it's safe to assume that in reality, she's checking up on John rather than just out for a drive, as she told the court. She knows John is still interested in Claire. It's to the point of obsession, she said earlier. And his brief visit with Claire has turned into an all-day event while Suzanne sits at home waiting. It's understandable that she might develop some suspicions and want to check them out. And, sure enough... When Suzanne picks up her story, she's once again, as she says, quote, near the Shattuck Junior High School, which, of course, we know is also right across the street from Claire Andrews' house. Regardless of her reason for being in the area, 
Egbert says her attention gets drawn to a grassy alcove on the school property. She sees the taillights of a parked idling vehicle aglow in the darkness. It's a warm August night in Nina. She has her windows open, and Suzanne says she starts to hear noises coming from the courtyard. Eggert tells the court that she hears two male voices coming from the grassy alcove at the Shattuck School. They're in an argument, she says. We don't know from the record of her testimony whether she's overhearing a heated discussion or whether the men are shouting or whether she can tell if they're engaged in a physical altercation during this time. But we do know that Suzanne reports that she's able to identify one of the voices. Suzanne Eggert recognizes a distinctive British accent. It's one that she knows well. Suzanne tells the court that the voice she hears echoing off the courtyard walls in the gathering darkness is that of her boyfriend, John C. Andrews. The situation is tense. The arguing continues and escalates as Suzanne listens in. She reports that the other male voice begins to plead with the individual that she's identified as Andrews. The other man, it seems, is scared of John. Suzanne hears him beg, no, John, don't, two different times. The second time, Suzanne reports that the man adds, I'll stay away from her, or possibly, I'll stay away from Claire. This is a pivotal moment in Suzanne Eggert's testimony. She can't see what's going on, but she is within earshot of the altercation. She recognizes the voice of John Andrews, hears the other man call him John, and learns that Claire is potentially the cause of the disagreement. Although she cannot identify the second man involved, Suzanne undoubtedly registers the edge, the desperation and the terror, in his voice. She feels the tension that hangs thick in the air just out of sight in that alcove, and she shudders with the ominous sense that precedes a terrible event. Suzanne hears a car engine revving wildly. A male scream pierces the darkness. She says it sounds cut off, as if stopped at its peak. Now metal scraping on the pavement. Suzanne states that she hears two loud thumps on a car and a sound like wood breaking. As the echoes fade into the night air, Suzanne hears a voice, the one that she's identified as John Andrews, saying, quote, there, now you're dead. How do you like that? End quote. Eggert testifies that she drives away from the altercation down Elm Street, pulling around the corner of the school building onto Loudon Boulevard, and she parks there. It's unclear whether she sees more of the scene while she's parked there on Loudon Boulevard, or if it's while she's driving back past the school as she leaves, as there's a few conflicting reports of her testimony. But we do know Eggert states she sees John Andrews' blue Pontiac Firebird parked at the junior high, in the school's driveway, right near the alcove. She says she sees John leaning into the open trunk of his car. Suzanne tells the court that when she sees John standing in his car, she's hit with the realization that if she's able to see him, he can likely see her as well. She's terrified. She hurries home and she locks her door. So that's Suzanne Eggert's testimony of the night of the murder. She doesn't see anything go down, but it's a pretty convincing story of the events and about as close as you can get 
without actually witnessing the murder. It's easy to see why, once Eggert finally agrees to tell the police what she knows, they feel confident in moving toward an arrest. It's very compelling testimony. All that said, we also need to point out that Suzanne Eggert is also not an ideal witness for the prosecution. First of all, we're talking about somebody who was in a relationship with John Andrews and is no longer in that relationship. Any good defense attorney can cast doubt on her motivation to provide accurate testimony against him. Based on her actions on the night of the murder, it would not be hard to paint Suzanne Egger as an angry partner who's checking up on a philandering boyfriend by following him around the town. She saw him at Claire's, and he was there longer than she expected, all day in fact. That's a pretty good reason to be angry, right? Additionally, there's the problem of Suzanne holding details back from investigators for over a decade. Why, if she had such damning evidence of Andrew's involvement in Starkey Swenson's disappearance, did she not come forward sooner? Yeah, those are great points. Although we have no reason to believe Suzanne Eggert's testimony is in any way inaccurate, and we certainly aren't saying that it is, it still might benefit us in our investigation of where the body could be buried to consider the source of this account. Suzanne does, however, continue her testimony, and she sheds some light on her rationale for staying silent for so long, at least. On Sunday, August 14, the day after Starkey's disappearance, John Andrews visits Egger at her home. According to Suzanne's testimony, John appears shocked when he arrives and sees the vehicle she has parked in her driveway. It's a car Suzanne has only just gotten, a used green AMC Gremlin. The night before, the night she overheard the events at the school, was the very first time Suzanne had driven that gremlin around town. Despite her concerns, John and Suzanne go to a restaurant together. While there, Suzanne notices cuts on John's right hand and inquires how he was hurt. John states he had stopped to help two girls change a tire on their car and injured his hand while he was doing so. He also tells her that he had driven over a curb and a sidewalk as part of this, and that he had damaged his car doing that. Suzanne presses him for more information, but John becomes irritated and he makes threatening statements to her. When they get back to Eggert's home, Suzanne reports, John put his hands around her neck, pressed his thumbs into her throat, and said, quote, What I did to him, maybe I shouldn't have done, but it's too late to worry about that now. End quote. He tells her that he needs to worry about himself, that he isn't sure if he can trust her, and she says he threatens to hurt her and her children if she talks to the police. It's because of this threat and her fear of John, Suzanne tells the court, that she moves out of the state and doesn't talk to the police about what she saw and heard on the night of the murder, only finally deciding to share those details over a decade later. Yeah, I mean, that makes a lot of sense, at least in helping us understand why she was hesitant to talk. She's still not a perfect witness, but remains a valuable component of the prosecution's case. Suzanne Eggert is not the only person to testify in the preliminary hearings. In fact, both Claire Andrews and Lois Swenson are called to provide testimony and shed even further light on the events of August 13, 1983. While it was Suzanne Eggert's statement that broke the case, She's actually not the first one called to the stand in the preliminary hearing. Instead, we first hear from Claire Andrews. And what details did she provide? Claire Andrews is able to add key information to the case, both in further explaining her relationships with Starkey Swenson and John Andrews, as well as in providing another layer of detail to the timeline from the day of the murder. 
Claire describes for the court a love triangle involving herself, Starkey Swenson, and John Andrews. Claire states that she met Starkey Swenson at a dance in 1974, years before she meets and ultimately marries John C. Andrews. At the time of the 1974 dance, Claire was married to another man, Robert Maskell. Starkey was married to Lois Swenson, to whom he remained married until his disappearance. Claire and Starkey began seeing each other casually at first at dances and friendly dinners, but this eventually develops into a sexual relationship. It reaches the point that they've discussed leaving their spouses to pursue a life together. Claire, in fact, does leave her then-husband, Robert Maskell, but Starkey does not divorce Lois, though he continues to visit Claire's house regularly. In 1981, Claire goes on a trip to India and meets John Andrews. Tired of waiting for Starkey to leave his wife and wanting to feel some happiness, Claire pursues a relationship with Andrews. They get married in England in July 1982. The day John and Claire return to her home in Nina, Starkey Swenson stops by to deliver a letter to Claire. He sees her luggage and apparently puts everything together, asking Claire, you're married, aren't you? Claire states that she hugs Swenson goodbye and spent the rest of the day crying on the couch, John with his arm around her, comforting her. About a month goes by with the newly minted Mr. and Mrs. Andrews living out their new lives in Nina. Claire Andrews has not seen Starkey over these weeks, but reaches out to him that August to meet up, stating she wanted to end things on better terms. They meet and they talk, but when Claire gets home, she states, John is very upset. Livid is her exact word. He demands to know where she's been and makes accusations of infidelity. Over the following week, John reportedly drinks heavily, takes many pills, and puts emotional strain on he and Claire's marriage. Claire tells the court that John spends his time following her around the house and that he repeatedly shines a flashlight in her eyes during those nights to keep her from being able to sleep. At the end of the week, Claire leaves a note that she's spending the night at a friend's house after work. She does so and files for divorce the next day. Seems pretty reasonable to me, to be honest. Uh, if somebody's following me around the house trying to prevent me from sleeping with a flashlight, I'm not sure that's a good sign of the things to come in that marriage. <laughs> yeah, I believe there's a convention against that. <laughs> yeah. So Claire gives us some insight into why John Andrews is furious with Starkey Swenson. He, in John's mind, has caused the end of John's marriage to Claire. She's filed for divorce after just six weeks of married life, and Starkey's potentially still seeing Claire throughout this time. According to Claire's testimony, she and Swenson did not maintain their sexual relationship during the six weeks, but John is suspicious of this. Now, this would probably be cause enough for any man to be angry at another man, but Claire says there's more to it. See, Claire continues to have a sexual relationship with John even after filing for divorce. In fact, this goes on right up to the day of Starkey's disappearance. That's right. And that brings us to the second aspect of Claire's testimony. The timeline of events, which is directly related to this ongoing sexual relationship with John. Claire is back to seeing Starkey Swenson regularly as well, which we know from both Claire's testimony as well as what Suzanne Eggert has heard from John. So Claire tells the court that the day before Starkey Swenson's murder, that's Friday, August 12th, she returned home to Nina from a trip to Australia and New Zealand. She'd been traveling for a while. And the next day, August 13, John Andrews comes to see Claire at her home. They sleep together.
Claire hopes John will leave the house after they finish, thinking Starkey Swenson may also come by to see her now that she's back in town. But instead, John hangs around drinking beers. Can you blame him? I mean, honestly, when you hear this story, you just think, wow, Claire Andrews, she's got a pretty active social calendar. So Claire and John are laying in bed, she says, when they think they hear someone outside the house. John, angry, demands for Claire to tell him who's coming to visit her, but the person never comes to the door. They don't see or hear anyone after that, so John stops pressing her on it. Shortly after that, the phone rings. Claire's worried that it could be Starkey calling from a payphone after seeing John's car at her house, so she doesn't answer. She tells the court that John, suspecting that there's a reason she won't answer the phone, becomes so furious that his eyes are blazing. John asks her if she's been trying to get him to leave so Starkey can come over. He accuses her of scheming to see them both and won't let up. Claire tries to calm John down and eventually Claire says John does leave. Starkey Swenson doesn't come over. In fact, she never hears from him again. So that pretty much concludes Claire's testimony from the day of the murder. And really, her story for the most part lines up well with what we've heard from Suzanne Eggert. John is at her house, he stays longer than expected, and he eventually leaves in the evening. Starkey Swenson does not make it to Claire's house. At least not that we can confirm. But we do know there's at least a decent chance that he attempted to come by or to reach out by phone. And certainly a chance that he was in the area of Claire's house and the Shattuck Junior High School that night. There is one more bit of information that Claire Andrews provides that helps the state's case against John C. Andrews. It comes from the period of time following the murder. Despite the obvious turmoil in their relationship, Claire Andrews does not stop seeing John after the night that Starkey Swenson disappears. You have to wonder if Claire at least suspects that John might have been involved in this, just as others in John's life apparently do. But it doesn't seem to bother Claire. Claire tells the court that she and John continue seeing each other and sleeping together in the time after Starkey's gone missing. She says, as you'd expect, given the high-profile nature of this case, that the topic was raised on several occasions in their conversations, and that at least twice, John responded to her by speculating, somebody probably hit him with a car and hit his body. To me, this is one of those things that's difficult to sort out in terms of importance. When you first hear it, you think, Wow, he's telling her exactly what happened. And maybe that's the case. It's certainly plausible. But to be fair, you also need to consider that Starkey Swenson's disappearance was widely reported in the local news. Many of the stories including the information that he was last seen leaving his house on bike at night. While it without a doubt seems suspicious that John would specifically mention someone killing Swenson with a car and hiding the body, I also can't imagine it's too far from anyone else's best guess either. I mean, a guy heads down the road at night on a bike and is never seen again? I'd probably also speculate someone hit him accidentally, panicked, and hid the remains. And when we think about Starkey Swenson's activities on the day of his disappearance, we really haven't heard much, at least not in the court hearing. To share that side of the story, the state questions a third individual in the preliminary hearing, Lois Swenson, Starkey's wife. Lois fills in most of the information that was reported at the time that Starkey went missing. She states that she and Starkey had taken the family for a picnic in the afternoon, had arrived home between 8 and 8.30 p.m., and that Starkey had set out on his bike shortly after arriving home. 
In an unexpected twist, Lois corroborates the statements of Suzanne Egger and Claire Andrews by testifying to her own knowledge that Starkey Swenson had been having an affair with Claire. Lois tells the court that she was well aware that Starkey had been cheating on her, that she'd known about the affair since the late 1970s. Lois's statement that she knew of Starkey's dalliances must have sent a shockwave through the courtroom. In fact, nearly every local media outlet led its next broadcast and newspaper with a story broadly touting Lois's knowledge that Starkey was a cheater. And it really was remarkable news. As the attorneys pressed Lois for details, she sat calmly on the witness stand. White pearl earrings to match her blouse and her short cropped hair. Black blazer complementing her houndstooth skirt. She looked very much the quintessential older woman in the mid-1990s. In stark contrast to her prim and proper appearance, Lois was recounting the intimate details of her marriage to Starkey Swenson, details of their own sexual lives, of Starkey's frequent trips to visit Claire Andrews, and of the tension this caused at different points in their marriage. Lois told the court that she first became suspicious of the affair in the late 1970s, She and Starkey often went dancing on their nights out, an activity that brought them in frequent contact with Claire Andrews. Starkey and Claire would somehow always end up dancing together. It got to the point, Lois stated, that on some nights, she would end up sitting alone along the side of the dance floor while Claire and Starkey danced together almost the entire time. The affair became such a thinly veiled secret in their marriage that Lois told the court she on several occasions would drive past Claire's house and see Starkey's car brazenly parked in the driveway. At one point, she said, she even saw Starkey shoveling Claire Andrews' sidewalk as she drove past. Starkey and Lois waved at each other. Lois was asked by one of the attorneys to discuss the strain this placed on their marriage with Starkey spending so many nights away at Claire's house. Lois replied that, while Starkey did visit Claire several nights a week, he actually never spent the night. Starkey always came home between 10.30 and 11 o'clock p.m. Yeah, it's sure nice to have some principles while you're out cheating on your wife, I guess. Yeah, you just can't be out there doing whatever you want, you know? Yeah, at least not too late at night. So Lois tells the court that over the course of their marriage, Starkey and Claire's affair did create some disagreements, some big and some small. In one of the more noteworthy discussions, Starkey brought up to Lois that he wanted to take a trip to visit New Zealand and Australia. Lois asked him point blank if Claire Andrews would be on the trip, and Starkey equivocated, said that he wasn't going with her, but that she would be there. According to her testimony, Lois then told Starkey that if he went on that trip, she would file for divorce. He decided not to go. The connection doesn't appear to have been made during the court hearing, But I've got to think that this trip to New Zealand and Australia is the very same one that Claire, who of course did go on the trip, returns from on the day before Starkey disappears. She did mention in her testimony that she'd returned from Australia. I can't imagine she's traveling to the other side of the world all that often, so I'd agree. It's very likely the same trip. So, Lois tells the court she and Starkey had an argument about his desired vacation in Australia, and then he backed down when she'd threatened to file for divorce. But, she says, this isn't the only conversation they've had which led to threats of this nature. Lois and Starkey, in fact, had gotten into an argument during their family picnic on the day Starkey disappeared, and they ended up discussing the current shortcomings in their marriage. 
The two had even begun speaking about a possible separation. Based on the fact they had just argued at the picnic, as well as Starkey's history of visiting Claire Andrews during the week, Lois is not too surprised when Starkey heads off on his bike on the night of August 13th. She tells the court she does become alarmed, however, when he doesn't return by 10.30, or 11, or even midnight. Lois was worried enough that she even drove past Claire Andrews' house to see if Starkey had simply decided it was about time he spent the night there. But his bike wasn't there. There weren't even any cars there. She says the house was dark. Starkey Swenson, as we know, was never seen again. So based on the testimony of Suzanne Egger, Claire Andrews, and Lois Swenson, the judge in the preliminary hearing decides that despite the fact that there is no body, there's enough circumstantial evidence to go forward with the trial. The three ladies have shared a pretty cohesive recounting of the events. Their statements provide a plausible motive for the murder, a gripping account of the events that possibly occurred, and an attempt by John C. Andrews to apparently hide evidence and intimidate would-be witnesses. And so armed with these stories, but lacking a body or any physical evidence, the state begins to prepare its case for trial on March 14, 1994. It's that trial and its aftermath, and new breaks in the case, that we will examine in the next episodes. Do you want to know more about the Starkey Swenson story? Visit our website at frozentundrapodcast.com and be sure to follow our social media channels on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube for additional information, behind-the-scenes footage, and more. We will continue to post insider content and updates as this real-time investigation progresses. We'd like to take a moment to thank those who helped us compile information on this case, including the Winnebago County Sheriff's Department, 